The text for the sermon this afternoon has been taken from Luke 5, the verses 17 through 26. Luke 5, verse 17, this is a continuation of the series that I have been reading when I had that opportunity, and this one is about Jesus healing the paralytic. Luke 5, verse 17, one day, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law, who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, were sitting there, and the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Some men came, carrying a paralytic on a mat, and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do so because of the crowd, they went up to the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow? Who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, Get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been laying on, and went home, praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, We have seen remarkable things today. The sermon which I am reading has been prepared by Reverend Holtfer of the Church in Carmen. In response to the sermon, let us sing Psalm 34, 7 and 8. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in the healing of the leper, which immediately precedes our text, the Lord Jesus showed his power to cleanse us from the effects and consequences of sin. The horrendous physical condition of the leper would have made him an awful sight to behold with his blotched and discolored skin, his rotting flesh, and his dismembered extremities. The disease which ravaged the man's body was a graphic picture of the effects of sin on a person's life. But Jesus showed the man his power and his love when he said, I am willing be clean. Christ overcame the far-reaching consequences of sin. And now, in this second healing which Luke records for us, we see another aspect of Christ's work. The paralytic, too, suffered from the consequences of sin. And yet the Lord Jesus makes a different, takes a different approach in healing this man. To the great astonishment of everyone present, he goes, goes beyond the outer problem to focus on the inner cause. I may proclaim this word of God to you. Christ's authority to forgive sins brings down the roof. First, we will see for unbelieving Pharisees, second, for undeterred men, and third, for undecided crowds. For the unbelieving Pharisees, 
Our text begins with a detail that should not escape our attention. In verse 17, where it says, One day, as he was teaching, Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, were sitting there. This is significant, for it is the first time in Luke's gospel that we meet with the Pharisees. Now, most of us know these Pharisees quite well. They are the famous opponents of Christ in the Gospels, constantly out to attack him and to lure him into traps. But to understand the significance of their presence in our text, we we need to realize what the Pharisees were all about. Their reason for existence was to uphold and protect the law of God. It seems the Pharisees, as an identifiable sect among the Jews, came into existence in the years between the prophet Malachi and the birth of John the Baptist, the years when Israel was still living out the consequences of their exile to Babylon. Though they had been brought back to live in Judah and Jerusalem, yet during those 400 years they only exercised self-rule for a short period under the Maccabees. In other words, they were still not enjoying the full blessing of the Lord And a number of them began to analyze the reason why this was so. Men familiar with the laws of Moses began to realize that Israel's disobedience to the law had caused their misery. A group of them began to devote more and more attention to the law, to studying it, interpreting, teaching, and obeying it, all in an effort to bring Israel back into favor again with God. This group became, you could say, obsessed with the law. They became hyper-legalists, even making many extra laws for the people so that they wouldn't even come close to disobeying God's law. A famous example is the third commandment. God commanded that no one should take his name in vain. So the legalists went further and commanded that no one should ever even pronounce God's name so as to avoid, in their view, any possible disobedience of God's law. They put, as it were, a fence around God's law. In time, this group became known as the Pharisees. They believed that by obedience of the law, they could earn God's favor again and please him to send the promised Messiah. The Pharisees were zealous for the law and wanted all of Israel to obey it so that God would bless them again. So when the Pharisees showed up that morning in a town in Galilee, it was not just out of interest's sake. These men were there to check out this new preacher they had heard of. Notice it wasn't just a few Pharisees who happened to be in the area, but, says Luke, they had come from every village and from Judea and from Jerusalem. We get the distinct impression that this was a delegation or an inspection team, you could say. They came from all over Israel, even from the capital city, some 70 miles or 112 kilometers to the south, to investigate this Jesus of Nazareth and what he was teaching the people. Like the inspectors in Iraq a few years ago, they were looking for any explosive material which could be used as weapons of mass destruction to detonate their religion. They were zealous for the law and the fence they had built around it, for that was the way to salvation. 
Luke even specifies that a subgroup of the Pharisees was present, the teachers of the law. And we should understand the ironic opposition here. Luke writes that Jesus was teaching some. Luke writes that as Jesus was teaching, some of the teachers of the law were present. The new kid on the block was being observed and judged by the experts and veteran teachers of the law. The Lord Jesus wasn't just a rookie teacher, however. He was someone they didn't know, someone who hadn't gone through their school in Jerusalem, someone who was not a member of their sect, and yet someone who dared to go around and teach their people. This was much more than observing a student teacher's practicum. This was a mission to find fault with this upstart teacher from Nazareth of all places. So we could figure, so we could picture a room filled with tension. Notice too that the Pharisees were not standing like the rest of the crowds. No, they were sitting there. The sitting position is the usual one reserved for teachers and others in authority. It's almost as if they're on a, on many thrones of judgment. They watch Jesus teach about the kingdom of heaven, and they observe the many healings he performed. Luke tells us in verse 17 that the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. So this was one of those days where there was a great deal of healing going on. And through it all, the Pharisees sit stone-faced, stoic and silent, unmoved by what they observed, miraculous though it was. Unmoved until the Lord does something radical. While Christ is healing various people, the roof overhead begins to crumble down on him and others. First, a crack of light appears, then a hole, and finally a space big enough for a stretcher to be let down. Something extraordinary is taking place as four men on the roof go to the extremes to lay their paralyzed friend before the great healer. The paralytic is laying there on a stretcher at Jesus' feet, unable to move. It's a moment of climax. Everyone's eyes are on the paralytic and on Jesus. The Pharisees lean forward in their chairs, and the crowd presses closer. What everyone hopes is for Jesus to do what he has been doing all day, heal the man. This would be a fantastic miracle, maybe the most amazing all day. Everyone quiet. Let the teacher speak. But what Jesus says to the man surprises everyone and positively rocks the world of those Pharisees and the teachers of the law. He says, friend, your sins are forgiven. All day the Pharisees had sat there, quietly listening to Jesus and watching him heal, all basically unmoved. But the thing that gets them stirring like bees in a beehive is not the miraculous healings But this momentous claim, friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees' raison d'être was to appease themselves to God by their obedience of the law. They understood that it was God who gave that law, and so it was God who would finally judge any and all offenses to the law. It was God, and God alone, who could therefore forgive any offenses against the law. That's why they murmured to themselves in verse 21, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? They, who were the teachers of the law, 
They were fully subservient to the law. And now here comes this Jesus of Nazareth claiming to stand above the law and claiming to stand in the very place of God. The Pharisees recognized the implicit claim in this statement. Jesus had more authority than they did. He was claiming divine authority. And for them, and that for them brought down the roof of their man-made religion. Who does this fellow think he is? The Lord Jesus had, with those few words, challenged their thinking, their belief. They were looking for false doctrine so they could expose him for what he was. But Jesus punctures right through the shell of their religion and exposes their own false doctrine. For he makes the ultimate statement of grace in the face of these oppressive legalists. Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees taught that forgiveness came by obeying the law. But this paralytic was incapable of holding so many of their man-made commandments. The Pharisees would have understood this man's paralysis as the very result of specific personal sin, either by the man himself or by his parents. They would have regarded him as a lawbreaker. How could such a man receive forgiveness? And who are you, Jesus of Nazareth, to make such a radical claim, to speak such blasphemy? It's a challenge that faces everyone who comes into contact with Christ through the gospel message. Do you believe this self-made claim of Jesus? Jesus plainly puts himself in the position of God and even plainly says that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus is not just a healer, not just a teacher. Muslims respect him as a true prophet. Buddhists regard him as a wise man. Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses speak highly of his righteous example, but they all deny his self-made claim to be God, to have authority to forgive sins. What about you, beloved? Do you truly believe that Jesus has authority to forgive sins, to forgive your sins? It can happen that a child of God is so overcome by his own guilt that he cannot forgive himself for what he has done. And with this overwhelming feeling of unworthiness, Such a person does not think that God can forgive him either. How could he ever forgive this horrible thing that I've done? But Jesus said to the Pharisees, and to all of us, as it were, the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. And he proved it in the healing of the paralytic. If you doubt whether Jesus was able to forgive men, if you doubt whether Jesus was able to forgive even your dark transgressions, Consider how he healed even the most unhealable of the sick and brought down the roof for the undeterred men of faith. This brings us to the second point for the undeterred men. For as much as Jesus sends a message to the Pharisees and to those who doubt his authority, he also sends a message to those who believe in him. And this is certainly the case with the paralytic and his friends who went through so much trouble just to get in to see Jesus. The intention of these men is to have their friend healed by Jesus. That is clear from the fact that the word had spread that Jesus was healing people inside the house. It's also clear from verse 18 where the intention of these men is clear. They tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. They knew knew Jesus could heal, and they believed he could heal their friend. 
And the paralytic himself obviously must have believed the same thing, or else he would not have consented to such extreme measures. To carry a paralyzed man is no easy task, and for the, paraly- for the paralyzed man to be carried about through the crowds would not have been particularly a pleasant experience either. These men went to that house that morning with great determination. Determination. Jesus of Nazareth can heal our friend. Let's get him inside. And these men were not put off by the large crowds who refused to let them through. Almost everyone in that crowd had an ailment they wanted cured. So no one was about to give up their place in line, not even for a paralytic. Rather than give up and return another day, the men persist and take their friend to the rooftop. Many houses in those days had an exterior staircase which led to the rooftop. The roof was usually flat and itself would serve as an extra floor of the house, a sitting area when the weather was nice. The men's idea is clear. If we can't get through the door, we'll break through the roof. And so they start digging. The roof would have consisted largely of a mixture of mud and reeds laid over the beams of the house. Once baked by the sun, the mud roof would turn to hard clay and form a reasonable shelter. The men started hacking away at the clay roof, loosely referred to as tiles here. So the intent on having their friend healed, so intent on having their friend healed that they were willing to bring down the roof of someone else's house just to give him access to Jesus. The roof they would gladly repair later if only Jesus would heal their friend. Finally, the hole is big enough, and with some ropes they lower the paralyzed man on a stretcher right in front of Jesus. Now is the moment of truth. This is what they have worked so hard for, risked public censure for. Their friend is at the feet of Jesus, and their hopes are at their peak. And we read in verse 20, When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. Jesus didn't reach out and touch the man to heal him. He doesn't command the paralysis to leave his body. No, he says, your sins are forgiven. Is that what the party of five had expected to hear? Is that what the friends and the paralyzed man had wanted so badly? This word of Christ, brothers and sisters, would have surprised and maybe even disappointed the men at first. They believed Jesus had come to heal, and they desired him to heal. Forgiveness of sins was an other matter, really. If they had wanted to pursue forgiveness of sins, then they could have, and they would have, gone with their friend to the temple in Jerusalem. They would have offered the right sacrifices, as we read in Leviticus 4. And like the leper, the paralyzed man was not banned from the temple courts. He could, and probably did, with friends like that, make his way to bring sacrifices to the Lord in true repentance. Once the priest had offered those right sacrifices on behalf of the paralyzed man, then, as Leviticus 4, verse 35 says, he will be forgiven. The paralytic had other access to the forgiveness of sins. They didn't need to break through the roof to have their friend forgiven, but to have him healed. But Jesus makes him wait for healing, and instead points him to the greater miracle. Your sins are forgiven. The Lord Jesus teaches the paralytic, his friends, and the crowd that the deeper significance of all these miraculous healings is that in Jesus lies the power and the authority to remove the deep-rooted cause of paralysis, of disease, of pain, 
a sickness, mental instability, sin itself. Jesus isn't just a healer, he's also a savior. He didn't, he doesn't just clean up the messes caused by the sin of the world, but he cleans up every source of the mess. He gets rid of sin itself. Friend, your sins are forgiven, and in that lies your greatest healing, your eternal joy. For imagine if Jesus were only a great doctor, if only the, the great physician. Doctors treat symptoms and try to restore health, but doctors are not able to root out the very cause of sickness. They can never stop the germs from coming or the viruses from attacking or the injuries from occurring. If Jesus was only a healer, then he could take away the symptoms, but he could never remove the cause. And it might well, it might well be that one disease would be healed only to be replaced later on by a different one. But the Lord Jesus is much more than a healer. He is also Savior. And so removes the root cause of all our aches and pains. Son, your sins are forgiven. It's a needed reminder for God's people. For so quickly we forget the miracle of forgiveness. As Christians, we are in a habit of praying for forgiveness every day. An excellent habit. But there is always the danger that something so regular becomes commonplace in our thinking. There is the real threat that we no longer view the complete forgiveness of all our sins as the miracle of all time, which addresses our most urgent need, the great rift and separation between us and our God. We can easily look past this tremendous gift of God's grace and have our eyes on other benefits that come from Christ, the healing of our bodies, the blessings of prosperity and happiness. We eagerly desire these things, and pray earnestly for them, all the while lightly treating the present reality of forgiveness. And when these blessings are withheld from us, then it can be that our joy quickly diminishes and our faith enters into crisis, all because we have have not centered our attention on the one thing needful, the one thing that is never withheld, the complete forgiveness of all our sins." The paralytic had to learn, as we do, that forgiveness is even more important than being able to walk, leap, shout, and sing. Man, your sins are forgiven. That's the greater miracle. And for the paralytic and his friends, the authority of Christ to forgive sins also brings down the roof, but now in a most positive way. For they received more than they asked, more than they had bargained for, The paralytic was healed, to be sure, and so a deep longing had been fulfilled. The men, the man who had carried, who had been carried by his stretcher for so long, now stood up straight, tall, and with the strength of a young man, picked up his mat and at the command of Christ and went home on his own two feet. You can imagine the ecstatic joy that this man must have felt at such freedom. That joy would only have been deepened as the man came to understand just that just as Jesus had set him free from paralysis, so he had also set him free from the slavery to sin. The root cause of his condition had been taken away. And he went home, praising God, just as the crowds around him did. For the undecided crowds. Our text finishes off with a description of the crowd's reaction. We are not told how the Pharisees responded, 
But from the very next passage, we can see that their minds were not changed by what they saw. The crowds, however, do react positively and issue forth in praise. Luke writes in verse 26, everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. But Luke leaves us with a distinct impression that the crowds did not fully understand what had taken place. We read further, they were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. We could also translate, we have seen strange things today. The Greek word used here is paradoxa, which we know in English as paradox. A paradox is something that occurs which is contrary to what you would normally expect, contrary to what is normally believed. The people had seen something totally out of the ordinary, but they weren't quite sure if they could believe their eyes. They hadn't expected Jesus of Nazareth to claim authority to forgive sins, and then to prove it by doing the impossible, healing a paralytic. They were stunned. They were filled with holy fear. But did they... But they... But did they truly believe in Jesus? Their statement was too inconclusive. We have seen paradoxical things. The crowds were amazed, but as yet apparently undecided. And we know that from later ministry of Christ that the crowds of people were rather fickle, greeting him as a king at his entrance in Jerusalem, only to denounce him as a criminal in Pilate's court, shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Whatever positive reaction to Jesus had arisen along the way evaporated in the moment of truth, and the crowds betrayed the one they were formerly amazed by. It all goes to show that faith in Christ is more than being amazed at what we see or read about him. It must be a firm conviction that Christ has the authority to forgive sins, and that in him I really do have complete forgiveness of sins. Be amazed at his miracles, beloved. Be all the more convinced, but be all the more convinced that in him you really do have all your sins forgiven. It's the greater miracle. It's the greatest healing. Let that be your greatest joy. Amen.